Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. And welcome to Commodity Watch Radio with me, Dominic Frisbee. Commodity Watch Radio is hosted in association with Minesight.com. Polar Star Mining are exploring for copper, gold and uranium. And their focus is largely on Chile. They're listed on the TSX Venture Exchange in Canada under the ticker symbol PSR. They have a market cap of about 23 million Canadian dollars. And their president and CEO is Douglas Willick. And he is, setting, and he is sitting next to me now in the bar of the Meridian Hotel in Piccadilly. Hello, Douglas. Welcome to the show. Why Chile? Uh, Chile is one of the more exceptional jurisdictions in the world for mining. It's known for its very large mines, namely copper porphyries, and also its fantastic infrastructure and extremely supportive government. Uh, when I say it's very big in copper, I'll try and put it in context for you. Saudi Arabia has about 20% of the world's oil. Chile has one-third of the world's copper reserves and production, so it's pretty dominant, and that's why all the large players such as BHP, Extrata, RTZ, and so on, including, of course, the largest copper mining company in the world, Cadelco, which is owned by the government of Chile, are so prominent and so successful in Chile. Cool, one-third. I didn't realize it was that big. Are you bullish about copper at the moment? I am. We've come a long way in a short period of time from 145 a pound back in early January to now around 235. Uh, it's an essential commodity if you're going to have any stimulus and, for example, infrastructure, uh, putting in new power lines as they are in China. And a lot of the mines are very old and they're high cost. So, yes, I think it's going to be supportive of higher prices. I, I must say, of, of all the metals, the one I'm most bullish about over the next two or three years is gold. But I was sitting, uh, having dinner the other night with the CEOs of three gold mining companies, and I asked each one of them in turn, which metal are you most bullish about? And they all said copper. Well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. I'm also very keen on gold, uh, but that's more from what I see going on with all these stimulus packages in terms of pr protecting yourself from inflation. But copper is the metal with a Ph.D. in economics, as you know, uh, Dominic, and that's because it's an essential ingredient if you're going to build an economy. And these large countries, which are, of course, in the press daily, such as Brazil, Russia, India, and China, cannot simply produce enough copper to, uh, to feed their, and, and support all these programs. So that's why there will be strong demand. And uh, is Chile a good... I mean, Chile's it's got the reserves and the resources in the ground. Is it, is it a good place to do business? It's an excellent place to do business. Uh, one of the things I really appreciated about it is the transparency and the fact that property rights are protected under the Constitution. If you own something, it's unquestioned. And we've uh, employed very good lawyers... Um, just to make sure our title deeds are uh, up to date and in good standing. Uh, as long as you pay your taxes, everybody's happy. And uh, Chile has that uh, remarkable thing in that the people save. Yes, uh, that's one of the notable features of the government. They've learned from past mistakes. So when there have been commodity booms, instead of just simply spending the money helter-skelter, 
they saved their money. And as uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown found out in February when he went to uh, Chile, they talked about their stimulus plan being financed out of savings because when copper prices were up around $4, Chile, which is the most leveraged economy in the world to copper, put aside $50 billion. And that money is now being used to support the small miners with copper price stabilization programs and going on to additional infrastructure programs to improve roads, ports, access. Uh, So it's pretty remarkable. The stimulus program accounts for about 2.8% of the uh, GDP of Chile. I compare that to, say, the United States, and their stimulus program amounts to about 2% of the economy. So it's dramatic. It's out of savings. It's not from printing money. Um, There are a lot of similarities in a a funny kind of way. It's like South America's Norway, the, the way you're describing it. I'm not, not sure if you're familiar with the economy of Norway here, but they, they, have, a, they have a high savings rate and a, it's a good country to do business and they're leveraged to oil, uh, but they haven't blown all their oil. They've, they've used the profits from their oil to, to, to fund their sovereign wealth fund. And well, they are, and of course the Norwegians are very prudent people because the geography's forced them on that. And, and like Chile, you've got the sea on one side and you've got you know these big granite hosted rocks behind you and it's a tough place and it's up in the arctic so they've learned if you don't look after yourself don't count on somebody to bail you out and they're both i would say very independent people who've made them uh, their own way in life and built their countries so it's it's a good analogy actually um what is, is the ch- currency of chile is the peso is that right? the chilean pesos that's correct and, yeah and does that kind of trade with the copper price it does. Well, it's inverse to the U.S. dollar. The dollar goes up, uh, the Chilean peso goes down, and vice versa. It's much like what's happened with the Canadian, Australian, and Kiwi uh, dollars, which are heavily commodity-influenced. You listed in mid-2007. Yes, July 2007 we closed. Uh, you listed at what price? 50 cents? We were at 75 cents at that time. Okay, and your high was in... Early 2008, at about $1.20, something like that? that? Yes, we had two highs. One was around $1.20 uh, back about March 2008, and we went back up again. And we had another run in October, November, right in the midst of the, of the doom and gloom because of the news that was coming out on our, our Montezuma property where we were finding a huge anomalies. Uh, very prospective for copper. Okay, and then like every other mining company in the whole world, you took a bit of a hit, and you're now trading at just over 30 cents, or just under 30 cents? Just around 30 cents, yeah. Okay. Um, why don't you give us an overview of the company, and uh, we'll, we'll look at some of your projects, and, and very well. what it is that you do, and what stage you're at. We have approximately uh, just under 60 million shares outstanding, and we've got a new board that was elected by... 60% of the shareholders outstanding, not the number of shares that voted, but actual shares on issue. So it's really got a good endorsement, and everybody's aligned with shareholders and moving forward. Management directors own well over 8 to 9% of the, uh, the shares outstanding. In terms of uh, what the company's most uh, attracting interest is based on our Montezuma property, which is in Region 2 up in uh, northern Chile, a lot of your uh, listeners may be familiar with a, another well-known company called Antivagasta PLC, a British company that originally started, I think, back in the 1920s and involved in that very region with either railroads or mine developments. And uh, Antivagasta actually are our neighbors to the south. We have approximately 43,800 hectares. It's to the south of the town of Kalama. To the north of us is the Cadelco El Norte complex, 
Just give us an idea how big 43,800 hectares is. It's enormous, isn't it? It's a small country almost. It's it's a small country in many ways, and what's particularly fascinating about it is it covers 20 kilometers of what's known as the West Fault System, and this is a major fault system. It's a slip fault, and it's uh, heavily mineralized, and you've got some of the largest, if not some of these very largest copper mining companies um, on it because of the uh, minerals that came up with that faulting. Mm. So to the north is Cadelco's El Norte complex, which accounts for 5% of the world's copper production. Right now it's around 900,000 plus uh, tons of copper cathode, and to the southwest is Anacfagasta's El Tesoro mine, about 93,000 tons a year, and their new Esperanza project, uh, $2.3 billion, coming on stream in 2010, and it's looking to produce about 715,000 tons of copper cathode, 215,000 ounces of gold, and 1,000,000, ounces of silver. So these are massive, and, and if you want to try to visualize what this looks like, they're basically bookends to our property, which is right in the middle. It's one of the big issues in Chile is what altitude are you at? Well, we're at 3,000 meters, blue skies. The last time it rained was February 2006. You can work there year-round. You don't have to worry about removing people or trees. It's just beautiful, flat, wide-open country and very perspective. And you believe that you have mineral mineralization of a similar capability to the, to the, to the, uh, to the mines you just described? Well, if you look at... Um, the large uh, geophysical anomaly that we've outlined, and that's based on only having done 25% of the property with IP starting in the fourth quarter of 2008. And again, tell us what IP is? Induced polarization. Basically what you're doing is putting an electrical current into the earth and getting a signal back uh, reflected by pyrite and sulfides. So you can see there's conductivity, and those minerals, they're not copper obviously, but they're often associated with copper mineralization, so it's a good indicator pathfinder for you. Okay. And uh, we're very encouraged because the structure we've outlined is some 25-odd kilometers long. The drilling we did in March of this year indicated that we've generated three porphyry targets. Porphyries, as your audience will know, are very large uh, systems, very prospective for copper, sometimes copper molybdenum or copper, gold, and silver and sometimes also with, uh, with uranium, uh, which is what attracted this area originally because we know that there is uranium in the area and uh, sometimes they're an indicator mineral for these very large porphyries on the West Vault system. So we drilled in uh, March, and I don't think the market fully appreciates the significance of what we did because it is early days. Um, from my perspective, the three uh, targets that interested me most of all was hole number three, uh, which encountered six meters of exotic copper. Now, for your audience, an exotic copper in that part of the world means one where the copper mineralization has been transported or eroded, and it's deposited through the water system. So we've encountered something that's come from somewhere else. Our next hole will be to go and chase that up in the water system and see where is the source that that copper is coming. And the average grade was 0.32%. That's not economic on its own, but it's, again, early days. But what was most significant was we also got 45 and a half grams of silver. So the question is, was that mobilized or is that part of a vein? And the only way you can tell is by drilling under it. As I mentioned earlier, these porphyries on the outer edges 
can have quite a bit of precious metals. So we're really encouraged by that. Um, another porphyry target in that same system, uh, drill holes number four and five, which were spaced one kilometer apart. Uh, drill hole number four had 54 meters of mineralization, copper mineralization, grading 550 parts per million. Now that's not economic, but it's again showing you that there is mineralization there. Number five had 96 meters of 370 uh, parts per million. So we're really encouraged. We think we just need to do some more drilling to, to find out where the center of gravity is on that porphyry. Holes number seven and eight also encountered uh, interesting mineralization, uh, 50 and 70 meters respectively of 530 and 510 parts per million. Uh, there's been drilling here before by Cadelco. They did it some 20, 30 uh, years ago. They were drilling into the West Fault uh, system itself. Uh, the anomaly kind of, kind of crisscrosses the fault because there are splay faults going off to the northeast and down to the southwest, and that's what's channeled, we think, these, uh, these, this copper mineralization and these showings. Uh, holes number four to eight, the mineralization, for those of you who are more technically minded, was pyrite and calcopyrite. Uh, our next phase will be to go and reprocess the geofixes we've done uh, and, and align that and interpret it with the actual drill results we've got and then go and do another round of drilling and see where we go. That will be going over this summer, uh, which is, of course, winter in Chile, but that's not an issue in that part of the world and then we'll uh, put up another third phase uh, drill campaign. So it's early days, but you know, to have got a hold of a property like this is remarkable. It's a testament to our information systems because we have all of Chile's land holdings in our computerized database. Very few, including the majors, have that, and we're pretty careful to keep that up to date so we know where the opportunities are, and that's why we're able to pick this up. So in a very short period of time, we've conducted uh, reconnaissance IP on this, uh, geophysics. It's thrown up targets. We drilled 14 holes with 3,500 meters of drilling. We've generated three targets. So that's a pretty good go for a very short period of time, and we're really encouraged that the major companies are aware of us and they're watching us because they know what the neighborhood's capable of. And it's your strategy to... to, to build something up and get taken out, or do you eventually want to build the mine yourself? Is that? I think any junior has to take the view that you bought it, you own it. <laughs> and yeah. so you have to approach this as if you're going to put it into production, which means not taking shortcuts, doing your homework, being very thorough. Because in the end, the better your work is, the more value it is to somebody else who wants to put it in production. These kind of uh, operations will require a billion dollars or more in capital to put into production. There is a scenario where perhaps we could do truck and shovel because there is a big smelter complex right there at uh, Kalama. It's only about 20, 25 kilometers from our border. But, um, no, we'll go forward and try to daylight as much value, and when it's sensible and we re receive a sensible approach, we'll do business. And what stage are you at now, and what's your cash situation at the moment? Right now we have about $3.5 million. And your burn rate? It depends on what our uh, programs are, but I would say about 150000 a month or so. So we're okay, good. so you've got enough for a year or two. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're absolutely uh, fine Presumably you like to raise money when you've already got money rather than... We would like to raise money when we've got money, and it depends on... For us, one of the things that's key is who's going to be part of the financing because what we've tried to do 
is be as dedicated to the geology of our shareholder base as we are to the geology of our tenements. So we've got some very good sponsorship in the UK from some big names that understand not only the prospectivity of that um, particular play in the country, but also knowing that management and the directors are all on the same page. Why, if I'm a shareholder, what, or if I'm not a shareholder, why should I, why should I buy your company now? Oh, I think you want to buy it now because, first of all, this is a thinly traded stock. It's 40,000 shares uh, on average a trade per day. So it's a, it's, it's a stock that's an easy one for a retail investor to get in. Mm -hmm. The company is very strongly backed by institutional shareholders, which is important to know because it means you're going to have some backing there to go the distance, which not every uh, stock has. Who are, you, who are your biggest shareholders? Uh, there's one company called Hud Bay Minerals, which owns 9.9%, and they came in originally because they're a big base metal player, and they recognize Chile's the home of big base plays, yeah. metal plays, and they wanted to see what we turned up with. Um, there's some other uh, large institutional funds from both the UK and Toronto that are also shareholders. Among them would be Sprott in Toronto, which is a well-recognized name. Absolutely. We're coming now almost to a close now, Doug, but you've, you've got other projects. Why don't you give us a, a brief overview of those? Yeah, we have roughly 22-odd projects with 155,000 uh, hectares, and those have just come along because we've been active out in the field and we keep staking and then we find something better. So we've now reached the, the, the position where we have a flagship property in Montezuma. We've got our teeth into it, and that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, the other properties, which are both uh, gold-oriented, copper, gold, and uranium, are attracting a lot of interest from others, partly because they really like Chile. And there are not a lot of people down there that are able to generate these kind of projects out in the field the way we are because, A, we know the land system, and, B, we know the prospectivity of these areas because our team has worked so long in Chile. Our lead geologist, uh, Mr. Terry Walker, who's a graduate of the University of uh, London School of, uh, of, of, of Mining, uh, has spent nearly 16 years down there. So that's really invaluable. And that's why people are coming to us and saying, we'd like to joint venture, we'd like to look at these properties. Uh, we're open to it and we encourage it because we'd like to see value for these other properties. Some we will drop. We want to be very focused and dedicated on our lead property. Your management, who, who are they? Uh, I am the president and CEO. What's your background? My background is that of an investment banker. I worked for a number of institutions, including uh, Deutsche Bank, um, where I made a lot of uh, connections with people here in, uh, in London over the years, and I've maintained that. Uh, in 2001, I joined a small junior and restructured it. It was heavily in debt, and managed to, uh, which ultimately led to something called the Gold Eagle Mines Limited which was bought by Gold Corp last September for about a billion four. And that was uh, right in the heart of Red Lake. So a lot of people were very happy about that. And uh, I've been busy down in Chile in the meantime seeing what's new. So I don't know if lightning will hit twice in the same spot, but uh, I'm certainly giving as much energy and drive as I can to, to pull it forward. Our chief financial officer is Adam Rokosevich. And he's uh, now full-time with us. Uh, he's got a lot of experience with companies such as Extrata and others. Uh, so he's, he's certainly doing a, a great job. And, of course, Terry Walker, as I mentioned, uh, heads up our operations in, uh, in Chile. We have about 12 people on the ground in Chile uh, working for us. Good stuff. And I see Dave Seaton's name there. Uh, listeners to the show will remember Dave 
Yes. As the CEO of Olympus Pacific, who interviewed a couple of weeks ago. Yes, and I'm a director of Olympus Pacific in part because uh, some of the properties they have, namely uh, Bon Mew, were properties I was familiar with from as long ago as 1993-94. And uh, it was quite a pleasure to be invited onto his board some two years ago and to see it become uh, the first foreign oil gold producer in uh, Vietnam since 1948. That's, uh, that's a nice little noma. Um, okay, well, the company is Polar Star Mining. It uh, trades on the TSX Venture Exchange in Canada under the ticker symbol PSR, that is Papa Sierra Romeo. The website is polarstarmining.com. That's polarstarmining.com. Uh, Doug Willett, thank you very much. Thank you. We, I've just started up the. Um, the interview again and we just uh, wanted to talk a bit more about Chile because uh, as you say Doug it's such a fascinating place one of the reasons it's fascinating is because of the geological systems that are very active there and if you are familiar with subduction uh, it's basically a conveyor belt where you've got the sea floor going underneath the underneath the um, the Andes, and in fact the Andes are a manifestation of their current um, output from the subduction of this ocean plate, which is being regenerated, melted, and then shooting up all these minerals along the border. And you've had successive waves of this. So if you, for, for example, look at Montezuma, that lies on an older one than the system that's on the Bolivian border some 60 kilometers to the east, which when you go up there, you can still see smoke coming out of these big tall uh, mountains that are up to six, seven thousand meters high and that's why Chile is so active with volcanoes because this place is continually renewing itself. You've got I, I've the, been there actually, I've been to the border of uh, Chile and Bolivia where you described and you've got the great salt plains of Bolivia yeah. and then you've got all those uh, thermal uh, you geothermal, know, hot, geothermal yeah. baths and, yeah. and uh, sulfurous this and I mean it, it looks it doesn't look like it's of this earth it looks like it's you know uh, oh it's like the moonscape yeah absolutely it's just it's unbelievable but, but that's also what makes it so so wonderful a place to conduct mining because you don't have to move villages if you're not bringing your own water and food you have no way of living in that location and if it wasn't for the mines no one would be there Absolutely. I mean, it's it's. Um, I actually played a game of football there with uh, a bunch of kids. There was me and another English guy. Yeah, and we played yeah. football because we were only playing with kids. I thought I, I won't kick the. I'll only kick the ball. I'm right footed. I thought I only kick the ball with my left foot. And an opportunity came up, and I shot, and the ball just flew. I've never kicked the ball so well in my life. <laughs> and my friend was like, "What are you doing? There are a bunch of kids. Don't kick the ball like that." And I, it, I, was, I didn't. And it's because of the altitude and That's right. the clean air. And it was. Yeah. It was. It yeah. was. It was it was very flattering to my game. Oh yeah. But um, and you do and 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 everywhere's miles from everywhere. And then every now and then you'll just see, you know, a couple of shacks or a couple of huts, and there'll be a couple yeah. of very hardened-looking families living there. And you think, well, how did you end up there? Well, Bolivia is up on the uh, Altiplano, which yeah. is much higher. I mean, we're relatively down low at okay. three thousand meters, so it's very civilized. Because as I say, when you li- arrive at this town of Calama, which is uh, basically servicing all of the Chuquicamata mines there of, of, of Cadalco. You just arrive at the airport, you look south, you can see a range of hills, you're on our property 10 minutes by pickup truck on a gravel road. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. And when you fly in and 
you circle over, and if you have to fly around and come in the other angle in the airplane, you fly right over this huge mining complex, which huge waste dumps and masses of activity. They're now upgrading their trucks from 360 tons to 400-ton dump trucks. It's just massive. It's, an, it's out of this world to see that. And are there issues with things like water there? Chile, it's usually water, energy, and, of course, altitude. So altitude's not the problem. Uh, there is electricity and water, obviously, with those operations there, and that's why it's nice to be close to infrastructure. On our property, uh, we do get water quite a bit in places. In fact, Cadelco drilled the property looking for water some years ago. In terms of uh, power, well, we'll probably have to build our own facility at some okay. point. But uh, So there's water even though it hasn't rained for a year and a half? Yeah, because it gets trapped in these aquifers. And it just okay. stays there forever and ever. Okay. And then, of course, it comes down as replenished from snow melt up in the Andes. Okay. That recharges the system. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, people have been. Um, Charles Lamb was mining there, or he, he was. Uh, oh, he was a remarkable uh, Englishman who was in Chile, I guess, back in 1820s, 1840s. I think I've got. My, no, it was probably later than that, maybe in the 1850s to 70s. Charles Darwin was there in the 1840s and stopped and developed a lot of his theories of evolution at that time. But Dr. Charles Lamb actually was shipping ore, if you can believe it, from Chile to Swansea to be smelted there. By ship, it was 25 percent ore. I've and how been did to the they? Fleet. I mean, what, how did they, how they power those boats then? Coal by sail. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. Actually, around the Cape Horn. By sail. Around the Horn. How many of those boats sank? I don't know. If you could ever find it, there'd be a lot of uh, good copper mineralization to <laughs> hold. Uh, it's it's remarkable, and you know you can go out there and still see all these greys with these English names, and it's uh, there's another. Uh, story that's even more interesting in terms of uh, Britain and uh, there's Chile. There's this weird relationship between Chile and Wales and also Argentina and Wales. There's no, a lot of Welshmen around Bahia Blanca. Yeah. In fact, there's a very f famous it's Englishman. Bahia Blanca's... That's Argentina. Okay. There's at Ushawa, there's a famous fam family called the Bridges who lived there. It's, I think the book that was written about 1940s or 50s was called The Uttermost Ends of the Earth and it was all developed in by, uh, by Mr. Bridges from the UK and the Argentines were quite concerned that it would become part of Britain but he said no, it's part of Argentina and I will be true to Argentina and now of course it's very you know, because of modern uh, connections in airline transport, it's very much you know, connected to the rest of Argentina but then it was only a few Englishmen And they, and they still, uh, there's bits of Argentina where they still speak Welsh? I don't know There, there are, and, <laughs> uh, and that's how Argentina became a rugby playing nation <laughs> and all these weird, weird times. And polo, busy. too. They're pretty and, good at polo. Absolutely. Um, what an interesting place. It is. And I'd recommend anybody who's looking for something a little different with lots of variety to come to Chile. If you go down to the south of Santiago, there's wonderful vineyards, as you're probably familiar. They've got a variety of uh, wine there called Carmenere. Absolutely. Which the, wine, of course. Which, the Chile, which the French discovered. I think in the late 1990s, because they noticed that some Merlot from Chile had some interesting uh, characteristics, and when they got down there, they found the Carmenere vines. And the reason it's significant is that this particular vine was wiped out in Europe by a virus, and uh, it had been shipped out to Chile, of course, which is very isolated, never got attacked by the virus. So this long extinct vineyard or vine uh, has come back to life, and Chile has specialized in the production of uh, Carmenere's, the year's 2000, 
2005 and 2006 are particularly good. Uh, and, and the people of Chile, is, is, is it that kind of typical mix of indigenous South American Indian and uh, Hispanic? Some, but um, there's not that big a native population in Chile because you've got desert for half the country. Um, so the southern Hispanic. part of Chile, which is um, probably one of the least explored parts of the world, um, did, never had a big Indian population. Most of the Indians would have lived uh, sort of maybe from La Serena down to uh, Ponte Mart, that okay. area. So the population is more Hispanic than... Yeah, I would say it's very heavily Hispanic. It's completely different from places like, say, Peru or Bolivia, which have huge indigenous population compared well, to the, the original... what's the overall population of Chile? Chile is about 16 million people, and I would say 8 to 9 million people live in the greater Santiago area. There's, uh, this is for the uh, listeners uh, to the show who post on the website GEI. There was a, a post. There's a, there was a poster on this website called Kuganau, uh, who was um, very popular poster and a very intelligent man. And um, but he was had a rather apocalyptic uh, vision of the global economy shortly before it imploded last year. And um, and perhaps his apocalyptic vision will will still unfold. But he he as far as I understand it, moved to South Chile. He's, he's gone to Chile to ride out the recession. Well, so he, he sees it as few, one of the few safe places. You could pick a lot of worse places. I mean, it's beautiful country, good people, very safe, lots of tenure and very sensible economies. Nice way to go and ride out the recession, drink red wine and, and ride horses. That's right. And excellent fishing, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> Both in the deep sea and, of course, in the rivers, which are largely untouched. Excellent. And is there jungle? I beg your pardon? Is there, is there rainforest or jungle at all? No, there's no tropical wet uh, forest uh, in the sense of your tropical. Uh, you'd have to go further south. It becomes pretty dense because you get huge rainfalls there. Um, mm. But that's getting down pretty far south. And then, of mm. course, when you get down around the Beagle Channel and down Tierra del Fuego, the trees are stunted and they're they're twisted and tangled because the winds are so prevalent and so so furious in that part of the world. So it's a complete range from the southern border of Chile, where you've almost got nice warm water, um, but there's not enough rainfall to support much in the way of vegetation, to down the south where there is more water and more rain, but it's colder. Absolutely. Well, Doug, once again, thank you very much, and, and it was a pleasure having you on. Thank My you. My pleasure. Thank you. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.